Um, good morning. I'm Shelby, for those of you who don't know. Um, I'm going to be reading from Luke 11, 5 through 13. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Thank you, Shelby. Well, this morning we are at the end of the line when it comes to our series on prayer from the summer. I hope that uh, all summer long you found it helpful. Uh, any of the ones you missed, you can always go catch up on our website. Uh, greaterhopemulberry.org. Uh, next week, I'm really excited about going back to Romans. Remember we were in Romans before summer started? Uh, we ended in chapter 11, and next week we're going to start in chapter 12 and, and carry out through the rest of the letter in the fall. Very excited about that. Uh, but this morning, I, I wanted to take us over here to, to the Gospel of Luke here in chapter 11, because what we just read follows Jesus' teaching in that chapter on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, most of the summer, we've been walking through the various phrases of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on and so forth. Uh, here in Luke 11 is one of those times where Jesus uses that prayer to explain to us how we ought to pray, what we ought to pray about, and the heart that we ought to pray with. Uh, but here, he follows it up by giving us two illustrations of prayer that I think can't escape your notice. If you want to understand what Jesus is all about, if you want to know what prayer is all about, what it means to have a relationship with God that's real and that makes an impact in your daily life, you've got to consider what Jesus is saying in these two illustrations. He's getting us to the very heart of prayer. And I wonder this morning, what would you say the heart of prayer is? Like, what's the most important thing about prayer? Uh, oftentimes we say it, it's things like this. I don't pray much because I don't feel, feel like I get much out of it. Or we say, I'm going to pray because I can't wait to see what I get out of it. Or I'm going to go to church because I want to get something out of it. Or I'm not going anymore because I didn't get anything out of it. Do you see what we're making the heart of prayer when we say things like that? What are we making the center? Us. What we're looking for and how it benefits us. Now, we're going to see today, as we've seen all summer, prayer really does benefit you. Like you really do need to pray. But the main heart of prayer, the core of the issue is not what we're looking for in prayer, but it's actually what God is looking for in prayer. Maybe a better way to ask it is, what is the goal of God in your prayer life? What would you say that would be? According to these two illustrations or pictures that Jesus gives us, the heart of our prayer life is our hearts being shaped by God's heart. The very heart of the prayer life, what God is looking to get out of your prayer life on his side is for him to be involved in your life, shaping your heart so that your heart becomes more like his. 
And here's another example of how when you become a Christian, when you begin to walk and follow Jesus in your Christian life, almost always you find out real quick, you're in for more than you thought you were in for. <laughs> when you first begin as a Christian, you're not really sure what, where God's going to take you and what he's going to do in your life. And suddenly you begin to see sometimes it's a little bit of a rude awakening because you realize that God is doing far more than you thought he should or that you thought he would. One of my favorite analogies of that is the Christian life is like a home renovation project. God's the renovator, you're the house. And of course, when you first invite God and ask God to come and work in your life, you think, of course I need God here because I need a little touch-up here and there. I'm not happy with the paint color. I need some better draperies. It'd be nice for the landscape to be more professional looking so I could get some more curb appeal. But then God shows up on the, on the work site and he's got a crane and a wrecking ball. <laughs> it's not what you asked for. You wanted a little touch-up paint, a new kitchen, new appliances, and God is tearing out rooms. God has taken the roof down. He's tearing you and me all the way down to the very foundation. And he's building us again from the bottom up. Isn't that how it works so often? You're always in for more than you bargained for. Jesus says prayer is that same way. God wants to change your very heart. He doesn't want you to be the same person tomorrow that you are today. He doesn't want you to be the same person next year that you are today. Or at the end of your life, he doesn't want you to be the same as you were 20 years ago. God wants to shape you into his image. Uh, Jesus gives us these two illustrations. And this morning, there are just two points. Every now and then I want to preach a two-point sermon so that you know that I can do something besides a three-point sermon. <laughs> and so this morning there are two points based on the two pictures. Uh, first of all, in verses 5 to 10, Jesus gives us a picture that shows us the kind of heart that God wants us to have. What kind of heart is God trying to shape in us through prayer? Jesus vividly describes it through that picture. And then secondly, in verses 11 to 13, he shows us how we can get the heart that God wants. So what kind of heart is God looking for? And then how can you and I get that kind of heart as we come every day all through our lives to pray? Uh, so first of all, the heart that God wants us to have. Uh, the way to, uh, a simple way to say what Jesus is getting across in, in those verses uh, 5 through 10, that first picture, is God wants his children to approach him with a humble boldness in their prayer. Humility on the one hand, but at the same time, married with that humility, a confidence or a boldness. Now, when you hear that, do you think, wait a minute, those two things don't seem to go together. You know, <laughs> which one of these things doesn't belong? Can someone really be truly humble, but at the same time also be a confident, bold person? What do you think? Jesus seems to say, absolutely yes, when you come to understand your relationship with God rightly. When you come to understand the way God thinks about you. And the way that God wants you to think about him right, you can, in fact, be someone who is deeply humbled and at the same time boldly confident. Look at the picture that Jesus paints to, to bring this point across. He tells us he wants us to imagine there in verse 5. He wants us to imagine that we're having to go to a friend for help. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him for help at what time? At midnight. <laughs> and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. Leave me alone. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus is wanting us to put ourselves in the position of someone asking for someone else's help. That's the essence of prayer, isn't it? 
We're calling on God for help. We are a friend. We're going to a friend. But here's the catch. We're having to go to them in the middle of the night. Somebody has visited us in Jesus' culture at that time. Just, I mean, kind of like today, but, but even stronger. The duty of hospitality was considered unmistakable. You could not deny it. If you weren't hospitable, everybody would talk about you behind your back. You would be blackballed. And so this friend visiting in the middle of the night needing bread means that if you don't have bread, you've got to go find it somewhere. It puts you in a, in a place of desperation. And so you have to go to your friend's house and knock on that door even though you know, hey, my friend has kids and they're asleep. And parents in the room can testify to this. If you wake my children in the middle of the night, <laughs> we might not be friends too much longer, right? Even spouses argue over this kind of thing. You're waking the baby up. You see, kids, I mean, let sleeping kids lie, basically, right? And yet Jesus is saying, imagine yourself being so desperate, so shameless, so humble, that you're willing to go up to your friend's house and knock on that door, even though you know it's midnight, he's asleep, and his children are asleep. And imagine, imagine, would it even be possible for that friend to call out from inside of his house, get lost? Would that even be possible Jesus says, suppose that were to happen. And of course, immediately, if, if people back then are thinking like we are now, I'm thinking, well, that's not really possible. And that is, in fact, the answer that Jesus gives. It's not possible for that person to say, get lost. Why? Jesus says there in the next verse, verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely, there's no other way to imagine it, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Translation, what is Jesus saying? Even if the man wasn't your friend, I mean, the fact that he's your friend means he's probably going to respond to you if you're desperate enough to come to him in the middle of the night, knock on the door and beg for bread. But even if he wasn't your friend, he's still going to get up and he's still going to help you. Why? Because you have shown the most amazing, in verse 8, shameless audacity in asking at that time of night. Shameless on the one hand, completely humble, desperate for help. I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I've got to go get the help that I need. I don't care what time of night it is, and I'm knocking on that door. But at the same time, audacity. I believe the person on the other side of that door is going to open it. He's going to have the bread that I don't have, and his goodwill is going to drive him to give me what I need. Do you see it there? Shameless, audacity, humble, boldness. Jesus is saying it's effective in friendships, it's effective in human relationships, how much more effective will it be in our relationship with God? God longs for and desires for his people to come to him with this bold humility, this humble boldness. In fact, according to God, you can't really be truly humble without being bold in him. And you can't be truly bold without being humble in him. The two go together. The two really are married when you really understand the character of God. That's why all throughout history, God's friends, the people who have walked with God and have, have walked by faith, were often people who prayed with this very same heart, this shameless audacity that the friend shows when he knocks on the man's door at midnight. I mean, just think about a few examples. Abraham, for example. That man was a, a, literally, he was called a friend of God in the Bible. And one time when God said he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and his relative Lot was living there, Abraham actually came to God and say, if you're the judge of all the earth, will you not do what's right? Won't you spare the city for just a few righteous people in it? 
I mean, here's Abraham haggling with God. He's straight up haggling with God. This man has a humility. This man has a boldness. God doesn't say, get away from me. Don't talk to me that way. He embraces Abraham. Same way Jacob. Jacob was the, the grandson of Abraham. He literally wrestled with an angel of the Lord in the middle of the night. Do you remember what he prayed? I will not let you go until you bless me. That's humble boldness. Moses, when he was out in the desert and the people were giving him a fit, he called out to the Lord and he said this. He said, Lord, if you don't go with us, we ain't going nowhere. We're staying right here. That's humble boldness. David in Psalm 10 says, Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? People are going to start talking bad, not only about me, but about you. Because you've promised to take care of me. And if you're hiding your face, everybody's going to blaspheme you. So come through on your promise. That's humble boldness. All throughout the scripture, we see it. God does not want us to think of him like the hard, grizzled, uh, critical boss that we've all at some point in our lives had. That we're so afraid to come and ask for whatever it is we need that we don't even ask. Even in the lead up to asking, like we're having nightmares in the middle of the night, waking up in cold sweats because we don't want to talk to that person about that thing because we don't believe we're going to be received well. He wants us to think about him as the boss who is also the friend. The boss who is also willing to come to us at any time, not afraid of him, not walking around on eggshells, acting like we always have to be careful, maybe we're going to wake him up, but coming to him expecting great things from him, expecting that he will deliver on his promises, that even when he doesn't give us exactly what we ask for, we've seen this many times in the summer, when he doesn't give us exactly what we ask for, we can be confident he's going to give us something better, even if we can't explain in the moment how that's better than what I ask for, we can trust in the work of our friend who is also the boss that on the other side of that door is a person whose heart is all for us. That's the way Jesus sums up the picture there in verses 9 and 10. If you'll look at the verses 9 and 10, he, he gives us the conclusion. I say to you, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Do you see how simple prayer really is when you think about it in terms of humility and boldness? It's just asking, seeking, knocking, believing that on the other side of the door God is ready to open it, usher us into his presence and bring us in. God has a heart to hear the prayers of his children. This also tells us something else. God has a heart for your heart. God cares most about your heart, you see. A lot of times I think this, when it comes to my prayer life, what does God care about? How long I pray? He cares about how many hours I put in? Or he cares about my technique? Did I, do, did I say the right things? Did I have theologically meaty enough prayers to impress him? <laughs> You know, I think he's concerned about all those things, but according to Jesus, it's just simple. It's ask and you'll be given, seek and you'll, be, and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened. It doesn't take a, a PhD in theology to ask, seek, and knock. It doesn't take four hours a day to ask, seek, and knock. It's something very simple. A child can do it. But you know what? It's also something like this. It's something that you can't fake. You can't fake asking, seeking, and knocking. <laughs> you can fake all that other stuff. You can fake four hours a day. You can fake a degree in theology. You can fake all, those, all, all the mumbo-jumbo, right? You cannot fake a sincere heart saying, God, please. That's asking. 
You can't fake a sincere heart saying, God, I'm seeking your face. It's not the created things in this world that I seek. It's you. You can't fake that. You can't fake knocking on the door. Knocking on the door means, I mean, you never knock on the door if you don't want someone to answer it, right? That's kind of rule 101. So if we're knocking on God's door, that means what? We actually want God's presence. We want him in our lives. Those are things you cannot fake. That's why God's so concerned about it. When God says in the Bible, I don't look on the outward appearance, I look at the heart. That's what he means. He's looking at the things about us that we can't fake. What we are on our knees before God himself, what's truly true about us in our heart, is the most important thing about us. It's the thing that God cares about most. In a sense, only he really sees accurately what that is. But he is overwhelmed with concern for that. The whole goal of everything in prayer and in your life, in church, and everything about your life is God trying to shape that into something that is glorifying to him, but also very, very good for you. And so here we see it. We see what God is most concerned about. But you know what? We also see a little bit about ourselves here. And it's not always really a pretty picture. You know, if God is concerned about my heart, here's the thing. God has not been fooled by my theological mumbo jumbo. (laughs) God has not been fooled by my hours on end, you know, trying to twist his arm to do what I want him to do. God's not been fooled by that. God has not been fooled just because everybody else thinks I'm religious. No, God sees truly accurately who I am, and he wants me to see it. And according to Jesus, I believe the reason why he tells this story is he wants us to ask, am I shamelessly audacious in my prayers? Am I truly humble, desperate for God? Do I really recognize that I need him? Do I really seek his face? Do I really knock on his door wanting him to be there on the other side to meet me? Or... Am I being swallowed up by that two-headed monster that the Bible says is the root of all of our problems as human beings? What is that two-headed monster? On the one, set, well, the one head is pride, <laughs> the opposite of humility. Everybody in here is infected with it. We're all infected with it, all the way back to the very first people that ever existed. Pride doesn't ask, seek, and knock because pride already has it figured out. Pride knows exactly where my life needs to go. Pride knows exactly what I think I need and want. And if and when I think about God and ask him for something, I use him as a genie when I'm proud. And I say, God, get on board with me. Join my agenda. Get with the program. Help me do what I know is right to do. You see, that? that's pride. Everybody in this room, whether you consider yourself a believer in Christ or whether you don't yet consider yourself a believer, I would encourage you, look and see all the ways that you've avoided humbling yourself to see your desperation, your, your need for God, enough need that you would drive you to knock on someone's door at midnight. Is that the way you feel about God? But the other side of the two-headed monster, the second head, is fear and unbelief. And fear and unbelief will kill this kind of prayer just as quickly as pride will. This side says, not that I have it all figured out, but I can't be bold enough to ask God. It's all the normal lies, like I'm, I'm too bad for God to listen to me. I'm, I'm too unworthy to approach God, even considering the sacrifice of Jesus. I still, can't, I still can't draw near to you. I don't have any confidence that, God, you're going to be able to work in my life, in this heart. There's no way that you can rearrange me. That's unbelief and that's fear. 
And in both, both ways, both the two-headed monster that lives in all of our hearts puts us on this roller coaster where when things are going well, we think we got it all together and we kind of ignore God and grow spiritually cold and treat him like a genie. But when things are going bad, <clears throat> we also ignore God because we feel like there's no way we could ever come into his presence. The walls would fall down on top of us if we ever came to his house. Both of them are lies. Jesus says this, if you, are, if you find yourself being prayerless or demanding, what you need more than anything else is a heart transplant. A heart transplant. The two-headed monster of pride and unbelief has to be ripped out of your chest. And what God wants to do every day of your life, this is not a one-time thing, this is a continual process. It's being ripped out and being put in as this new heart that's characterized by humility and by boldness. You know, the Bible gives us this picture of prayer. It describes prayer like incense that rises up to God and he smells it and is pleased with it. Have you ever heard that from the Bible? Well, think about that analogy. Have you ever had a stick of incense? In order for it to rise up, you can't just sit it there. What do you have to do? You got to set it on fire. There has to be a fire within for the fragrance to go up. Isn't that right with incense? I think God is teaching us something very important about prayer there. There has to be a fire within your heart in order to pray right. It's a miracle for you to pray right. A stick of incense can't light itself on fire. <laughs> it needs someone else to light it on fire. And so God is saying, we're going to see it right now in the next picture that Jesus gives. God is saying, I have come into this world to light the fire in your heart that will make it such that the incense, the fragrance of bold humility would rise up out of your, out of your heart right into the throne room of God and that he would be pleased like a father is pleased with his son. And so let's look at the second one now. We see the kind of heart that Jesus wants us to have. How in the world do we get it? Uh, look at what he says there in verse, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? See, in the first picture, Jesus is telling us to think about ourselves as the one asking, right? I'm the friend knocking on the door at midnight because I need something. He's teaching us about our heart in prayer. This one, who is he asking us to see ourselves as? The one being asked. He's asking us to put ourselves in, in a way, imagine ourselves as being in God's place. The one with someone coming to them with prayers and petitions. How do you respond, he's asking, and what does that say about the way God wants to respond to us? The summary of what Jesus says is this, very simple. The way that you and I get a heart of humble boldness in our prayers is only this, by knowing deep down inside that God is our heavenly father who loves us and promises to give us nothing less than himself. That's the way it happens. The fire gets lit in me and the incense goes up when I recognize that God receives me not as an enemy, although he could have. He receives me not just even as a friend, although he could have done that. Instead, he receives me as a son. He receives me as someone in his own family. I mean, that'll change a life to recognize that. There's a beautiful story in the, in the Bible. It's actually just a few pages over in, in Luke chapter 19 that expresses what it looks like for somebody to realize that God is their father. It's a story of a man. You may have heard of it. It's a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not the neighborhood goody two-shoes, okay? 
Just get that through. He, he was a tax collector, which, you know, today the IRS may be unpopular, but they weren't considered, they're not considered criminals, right? We're on the same page there, <laughs> at least maybe. Back then, though, tax collectors were considered criminals. Men like Zacchaeus were men who were betraying their fellow Israelites to work for the Romans who were oppressing the Israelites. They were not only getting the money and collecting the money for the Romans from their own people, but they were collecting a little extra, probably a lot of extra off the top to line their pockets. What do you think everyone thought of Zacchaeus? What do you think maybe Zacchaeus even thought of himself? What do you think Zacchaeus thought God thought of himself? And then think about this story. Jesus is passing through Zacchaeus' town where he is infamous and where he is hated. It's like a parade when Jesus comes through town because everybody wants to see him. The Bible says there in the story that Zacchaeus also wanted to see Jesus because he was curious about him. But because Zacchaeus was short, he was vertically challenged, he had to climb up in a tree in order to get a view of him. He had to get up over the top of everybody else. He's climbing up in a tree. And then it says, as Jesus passed by that place, Zacchaeus got a big revelation of what God thinks about him. And it was absolutely shocking and surprising. If you had asked him, is Jesus going to pay you any attention? He would have said, no, nah, probably not. Maybe he would stop to like ream me out and tell me all the ways that I'm wrong and tell me why I'm not worthy to even be there in this tree looking at him. Maybe he would stop me and say that. If you polled the crowd that day and said, hey, what do, you, what do you guys think God thinks about Zacchaeus? It would have been like unanimous. Zacchaeus, that guy, I mean, he's going straight to hell. God hates that guy. He is completely out of court. God doesn't have any time for someone like that. And here's what happens. Jesus stops. It says he looks up in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Because today, I just got to come eat dinner at your house i got to come sit at a table with you, Zacchaeus. i got to come throw a party for you. I, I want to do some heart-to-heart business with you. And it says Zacchaeus came down from the tree and he received Jesus gladly. This tax collector, this gang member received the Son of God gladly. That's what it will do to you when you feel the love of God embrace you, even in your unworthiness. And then it says they went to his house and at dinner Zacchaeus says, Jesus I repent. I'm going to turn away from all my stealing. In fact, I'm going to give back four times over everything I've stolen all throughout the years. I'm pledging that right now to you. And what is it that Jesus says to everybody that's hearing? Their jaws were probably dropped all the way down to the floor, right? They dropped their appetizers on the ground. (laughs) Because, Because Jesus says today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, he says, is also a son of Abraham. What's Jesus saying? This man is a child of God. He's a child of the one true king. He's adopted into the family of God. It doesn't matter one little bit what the whole crowd thinks about Zacchaeus to God. God has love for Zacchaeus. God has moved towards Zacchaeus to adopt him into his family. And so Zacchaeus, his whole life gets shaken up. He receives God gladly where before he would have been like, get away from me. I'm a man of crime. I do what I want to do. Now he receives him gladly. And now he repents of all of his sins. That's what can happen in your life. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, 
Galatians 4, that what God did that day for Zacchaeus, he does for everybody who believes. It says that even though we were slaves to sin, God sent his son into the world, Jesus, to redeem us from our disobedience to the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When Jesus died on the cross that day, he was carrying away that two-headed monster that all of us are guilty of having in our hearts. He carried our pride. He carried our unbelief. He was punished there for us so that we didn't have to be punished. He was punished there for us so that you and I could be treated as he deserves to be treated rather than as we deserve to be treated. So we get to be treated like Zacchaeus that day, children of the one true, true king, children of God. But not only that, Galatians goes on. In the next verse it says, because you are his sons, because God made you and adopted you through the work of Jesus Christ, you can now know every day that you're his sons because he has sent the spirit of his son into your heart. The spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He helps you pray to God as if he's your dad, as if he's your father. So we are no longer, it says, slaves to fear, but we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs of all the good things that God's given in other words, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work when a dad walking alongside with, with a kid uh, on the street suddenly begins to grab that child, bring that child close in his arms and whispers in his ear, I love you. I'm so glad you're my son. When God died on the cross, when Jesus died there and rose to send the Spirit, that's what he was doing. He was sending the Spirit so that you and I might know the embrace of God's love. The assurance of the love of God, that's the only thing that can humble you while at the same time giving you confidence. It humbles you to know, hey, I, I couldn't have done it myself. It took a cross. I'm, I'm way worse than I ever thought I was. But it secures you because, look, the Son of God himself went to that cross willingly for me. I am way more loved than I ever imagined. And so this morning in your prayer life, kind of wrapping up the whole summer, if you're wanting to make gains in your relationship with God and learn how to pray, the main thing you need to do is not just simply study prayer. It's not study techniques about prayer and make sure you increase your prayer time, although all those things have their place. Here's the main thing you do. You get it down right into the very core of your being that you are a child of God. You study, you learn, you grow every single thing that the Bible has to tell you about what it means for you to be accepted and adopted into his family, and you believe that at the core of who you are. Does that define you this morning? I mean, so often what defines us is circumstances. I mean, our inner peace goes up when everybody says, what a great guy, and it goes down when they say, I hate you. It goes up when the job is going well, we're making the money, it goes down when we lose the job. It goes up when our kids are behaving. It goes down when they get in trouble in school. That's the roller coaster we're normally on. But if, if what God said to Zacchaeus, if what Jesus is saying in this, in this parable, that if you, though you're a sinner, know how to good, give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to you? Well, if that defines you, then nothing can really take you down. Nothing can really destroy you and undo you. That has to define you. So this morning, if you want to grow in prayer, do you know God as your father? Do you have him as your father? Would you turn away from pride, life your way? Would you, would you stop trying to keep him out of your life as if you're doing a good job already without him? Because everybody knows you're not. 
He knows you're not. You know you're not. Would you also get rid of your unbelief? That says like Zacchaeus, hey, I'll hide up here in the corner of a tree so he doesn't see me because I'm too unworthy. And when you, will you come out in the light of the day and have dinner with Jesus? Will you come out and know that this is exactly what Jesus has always made you for? And then here's the last thing. Do you know every day how to encourage your heart in the fact that he's your father and you're his son? I told you last week a story about Charles Spurgeon. Great servant of God, preacher, did a lot of things good for his society in London a long time ago. But he was also a man who struggled a lot, and so he had to learn how to pray and fight through prayer. Last week, I, I showed you an example of how he spoke to his sin and temptation. Well, this week, I want to leave you with this. Spurgeon knew how to plead his adoption in prayer. You know what I mean by pleading your adoption? I mean, when, when someone goes to court and they want to make their case, they plead their case. They lay out all the facts of the case and they say, these are all the reasons why you should accept me. Spurgeon knew how to plead his adoption with God. And I want you to just hear this and think about if this could be something that you would adopt in your daily prayer life. It sounds an awful lot like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and all the great friends of God through the Bible. He says, I have found it a blessed thing in my own experience to plead before God that I am his child. When some months ago I was racked with pain to an extreme degree, I was in a lot of pain, so that I could no longer bear it without crying out. I asked everybody to go from my room and to leave me alone, and then I had nothing I could say to God but this. You are my father, God, and I am your child, and you as a father are tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as you make me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him. And I would put my arms under him and sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you still lay on me your heavy hand and not give me the smile of your face? He said, I pleaded with God's fatherhood in real earnest. Humble boldness. Faith mastered it by laying hold upon God in his own revealed character. That character in which in the darkest hour we are best able to appreciate him. I think this is why that prayer, our Father which art in heaven, is given to us. Because when we are at our lowest, we can at least still say this, Father, help me. Father, rescue me. Do you know how to plead that way with God? I pray you do. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. That you would be so generous lord with us that you would want us to ask seek and knock and you would be you would be willing to give and to be found and to open up the door to us god you're not playing a cat and mouse game with anybody in this room you're not trying to trick them you're not trying to hide from them and so father i pray that you would open up all of our hearts to see what you're trying to tell us about yourself this morning in your word you're our father you're our father at the cost of Jesus, your son. You've adopted us into your family, and the Spirit's daily work in our prayer life is to make us know more deeply who we really are in you. Help everybody in here to know I'm a child of God. I'm never alone. I'm 100% accepted and loved. I, I am I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave to pride and to unbelief. And I have in me a power that raised Jesus from the dead and that will one day raise me and all things in this earth.
Father, show us that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.